Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of CF Community Voices. I'm Siri Vaith, Executive Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Research Institute, and it is my pleasure to be here today with Brian Callanan, who's the founder and Executive Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Lifestyle Foundation. Uh, an adult with CF, I believe, if I get this correctly, Brian, that it is your passion for exercise and its direct correlation to physical and mental health that inspired you to launch your foundation. So welcome. And if you want to share a few words about your foundation, we'd love to hear. Thanks, Siri. No, it's such an honor to be here with you today and to be part of this podcast. Um, as you mentioned, I am an adult living with CF. I'm currently 46 years old. And I uh, started the Cystic Fibrosis Lifestyle Foundation in 2003 with the intent of bringing a greater spotlight onto the importance of exercise in managing CF, both physically and mentally. Uh, we began in 2007 providing recreation grants to the CF community of up to $500 or $1,000 if it included a peer support and non CF. Uh, since then, we are uh, coming up on our, well, we're in our 20th year of uh, existence and have reached just over a million dollars that the organization has given out to over 2,000 recreation grants um, of all sorts of activities, shapes, and sizes that uh, really are, are driven by the, the community's interest in activity of their choice. So um, amidst the um, handout of financial support, we also offer a hand up through uh, educational programs that were born during the COVID quarantine period and just providing a sense of fun and communal activities online to do together. And that really morphed into more of an educational, informational and empowering program. So we've uh, diversified a bit and are just keeping the wheels going and trying to adjust with community needs in this new era of CF. So thanks for being here today, an amazing program, such a gift to the CF community. Uh, but today we are here to talk about copay accumulator programs, uh, copay accumulator adjustment programs. Uh, these are, I, I say regularly, that term I think was created so that people would tune out and not pay attention. The eyes kind of glaze over as soon as you hear the term, but um, it is really important because it has, these programs have such a detrimental impact upon the CF community and really anyone who needs to access their prescriptions. So the, what we'll do next, I'm gonna share a slide deck. I'll walk us through it just so we're all on the same page with our understanding of what copay accumulator programs are. And then I'll stop the sharing of those slides and we'll be able to hear from Brian and his experiences with copay accumulator programs, um, strategies to survive them until we can pass legislation to ban them, and then also about his own advocacy efforts to, to create legislation to ban these practices. So with that, I will share my slides. Okay, so what are copay accumulator adjustment programs? They are proliferating in insurance plans um, across the country, and they are used by insurance companies to prevent copay assistance from applying to your annual deductible and out-of-pocket expenses. And it is basically a form of double dipping on the part of payers. Because what happens, historically, your funds, if you have a specialty medication, and for us in the CF world, there are many specialty medications that we need, you 
quite often the only way to access these therapies is to use a copay card from the manufacturer. So historically, you would use that card in January, you could use it in February, and the, the value of that card would be, would one, give you access to your medications, two, would be applied to your deductible and your annual out-of-pocket. So that come around March, when the value of that card has been fully utilized, you've walked across the bridge, you've met your deductible, and you are now paying your copay. So this is historically how it always was. But recently, increasingly, uh, payers have no longer been honoring that copay assistance, and thus people will show up to get their meds in March and ultimately realize their, their clock has never begun. They now have to begin to pay their deductible. So, uh, you know, cost of patients increase significantly, insurers and pharmacy benefit managers double their profit. So there are some myths about copay accumulators. Um, why should we, you know, the, the payers will argue that uh, copay accumulator programs are really necessary uh, because manufacturer copay cards are really just a, a strategy to drive patients to name brand drugs instead of less expensive equivalent generic drugs. Um, but the fact of the matter is that the vast majority and the estimates range, but uh, most recently close to 70% of medications purchased using manufacturer copay cards have no generic equivalent. So these programs are proliferating, as I said, nationwide, almost two thirds, 64% of plans now have copay accumulator programs uh, embedded within them. And I will say they are added most often with little or no notification to patients. And so people are not aware that this is now part of their insurance plan until they get to the pharmacy counter and realize they have not had reached their deductible and are told, you know, you may need to pay thousands of dollars to get your medications. Um, and so more and more patients are forced to walk away from the counter without their uh, prescriptions. And I can say I'm an example. I had this embedded in my insurance plan. There was no uh, notification of this. I actually called to ask in advance whether I had this copay accumulator program. They sent me documentation of my plan and I found reference to it on page 72. So uh, embedded, hidden, no notification to patients. Okay, everybody's eyes are going to glaze over because it's a chart. It's a lot of numbers. But here's the main takeaway. The top illustrates a hypothetical copay, hypothetical out of um, copay assistance card. But the key fact here is at the end, historically, the way it always was, copay assistance, if the card was worth $7,200, it would be expended and the payer would basically be collecting that to offset their obligations, while the patient, the consumer, would owe $1,300. With a copay accumulator, accumulator program, um, they absolutely are going to use the full value and accept the full value of that copay assistance. And then they will also um, force the patient, force the consumer to also pay their deductible. So in the end, you can see the difference. They're making almost twice, they're receiving almost twice the payments with the exact same scenario. So these, you know, it's 
pretty obvious that if you cannot access your therapies, that there will be worse health outcomes and uh, potentially greater expenses with emergency room visits. Um, there have been numerous studies on access to therapies that have shown that when costs reach $75 to $125 for your copay, more than 40% of people will walk away without their meds. Uh, when they reach $250, which is very common for a lot of the specialty medications, over 70% of patients have to leave the pharmacy without their medications. So this is um, the cost of copay accumulator programs will literally bleed out to other areas of healthcare and other expenses. So how do you know if you have a copay accumulator program or maximizer program, um, you just call your insurance company and ask them. Um, be aware because it's very likely that you have one and you did not know it. And so I think that's why Brian and I are here today because we really want people to know whether or not this is happening to them. Uh, our concern is that people are kind of siloed in their hardship without knowing that there's a name for what's going on and that there are efforts to change this. Um, so, uh, you know, and here's information that the AIDS Institute has just been a front runner in gathering information about this, a great resource, but um, they can show and document how it is very rare for insurance companies to let. Uh, consumers know that they have inserted these. Um, there are disguises, you know, the, the use of words to make it seem like it's not a hardship, but a benefit. So um, CVS Caremark calls it true accumulation. Express Scripts is calling it out-of-pocket protection. Protection for whom is not stated, of course. And United Healthcare calls it uh, copay card solutions accumulator benefit. So just pay attention to that. Um, we are really trying to find out how many people, particularly in our CF community, are being impacted by this. So there are actions um, being taken across the country to ban this practice. And this map here, yes, it's kind of wonky looking, but it does show the states in purple that have passed legislation to ban copay accumulator programs. And I think it's important for people to note that you know, in our world of red and blue states, um, that they're, they're, you know, there's no discrimination with this. Access to therapies impacts all of us. And so you can see here, it's a very diverse states that have already passed legislation. And moving on, you can see here in blue, um, these are states that right now in 2023 have legislation that has been introduced to try and ban copay accumulator programs. And so we'll speak more about that uh, afterwards in ways you can get engaged. So example, uh, CFRIs in California, we are one of the sponsoring organizations of legislation that's been introduced this year by our assembly member, Dr. Akila Weber. She's an OBGYN and very um, in tune with the needs of patients. Um, so this will be, and we have co-sponsors, Hemophilia Council of California, Rheumatology Alliance of California, uh, and the ALS Association. So this is what's happening across the country. These very strong coalitions of patient advocacy groups are forming to make change. There's also efforts at the federal level. Uh, HR 830 has been introduced we had a bill last year that didn't make it through, um, but what I, again, I want to point out here is the very bipartisan authorship of this legislation. Um, and I will add that last year uh, it was introduced with bipartisan support. It very quickly gained 
a large amount of Democratic support, and then the Republican side started to wane. So we're really, really encouraging everybody to speak to their representatives. This is a bipartisan issue through and through, and we really need to have broad support for this on the federal level. You say, well, why? What's the difference between state and federal? It's important to have it on both levels because um, if Brian is living in Florida, but he's covered by a larger company whose plan is based in a state that also does not, well, let's let's use a better example. If Brian lives in New York where they have banned copay accumulator programs, but he's employed by a company that has um, a very large insurance plan that is in say South Dakota, um, he is bound by that state. The wherever that insurance policy originated, he's bound by that. So even if he lives in a state with copay accumulator bans, he will not be protected by that. So there's a wonderful uh, coalition, uh, the All Copays Count. I really encourage everyone to go to that website, get engaged. You can sign up to get alerts. Uh, you can find out what's happening in your state and ways to engage. Um, there it is again. And I just want to reiterate our most powerful tool uh, as members of the CF community, as members of the rare disease community, as members of the patient advocacy community, our stories are our most effective tool and we really need to gather more of them. Um, so really never discount the impact of your own experience in making change. So with that, I will stop my share and I will come back to Brian. And uh, Brian, thank you again for being here. And I remember, I mean, this was years ago, right? That you were first impacted by a copay accumulator program. Correct. Yeah, in 2017. And I was interesting that I, I actually had gotten a notice from my insurer uh, in October of 2016. And uh, I, I called the insurance company to inquire about what this meant, what this notice was saying, and was told that with a chronic terminal disease that I would not be applied to this new uh, program that they were implementing copay accumulator. Uh, so January 1st of 2017 came and uh, I filled one of my CF medications. That's a high cost medication. I utilized one of the uh, copay assistance programs through the manufacturer and my deductible was met and uh, my copay, my out-of-pocket maximum was met. And so for January, February, March, April, I was operating as though my deductible and maximum out-of-pocket expense had been met. And then in May, when I called to uh, refill uh, my CFTR modulator therapy, um, which is on the higher end of cost uh, and also of significant urgency to not have lapse in treatment, um, I had about three days of medication left and uh, when I called the pharmacy to refill it, they said, this is weird. You're coming back with a $10,200 copay for this. And I, I didn't speak for a few minutes, I think, but um, as I inquired more, the insurance company implemented this copay accumulator retroactively. So going back to January of 2017, they reversed the copay assistance that I had received out of my deductible. And now I was left with a $10,200 bill to pay before I could access my medications on the other side. 
So you can only imagine the stress, anxiety, uh, difficulty this uh, caused. And for me, the only option was to borrow money from family and friends. And I think it took a pooling from three different people to help me meet that amount, which I then could be reimbursed from a manufacturer or third party assistance like Health Well Foundation or some of the other private foundations. Um, but to, to come up with that amount of money out of my pocket was a huge barrier to overcome. Um, but knowing that it was now a reality that I needed to deal with, in subsequent years, I've had to start planning months in advance to start saving up for this huge amount of money that I need to pay at the beginning of each year out of my own pocket. And it has to be demonstrated to my insurance company. I have to show bank statements where the charge came out of my bank for them to apply that to my, my uh, deductible and out-of-pocket maximum. And from there on, again, I can pursue reimbursement. Um, but I don't carry credit cards. I, don't, I do my best to stay out of debt. Uh, and I hate to borrow money from people. So it, it really takes a significant amount of planning to be able to, to jump over this hurdle and get to my medications on the other side. When this happened in 2017, um, my anxiety, stress, fear, anger, uh, really drove me to dig in on where this was coming from and why, why it was being allowed. And I came to understand that uh, I called my insurance company and I, I reached one of the highest executive levels um, and senior pharmaceutical director and was explained that these policies and procedures are largely driven by a federal document that is created by the Center for Medicaid Services. Although it's titled the Met Center for Medicaid Services, it also applies to commercial insurers. And it's a document known as the Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameters, or NBPP. And that document uh, didn't have language that prevented these copay accumulators being, being introduced. But in the subsequent year, uh, for 20, well, in 2019, there was language in that document proposed uh, that said these copay accumulators could only be implemented when there are generic available alternatives. And I understand that as a consumer, as a financially interested person, I get it. I can see where that is aiming to help incentivize people to utilize generics when they're available. But I think as we know for the CF community, um, more than 70% of our medications do not have generic alternatives and are very high cost. So a 60% copay from the highest tier medication in your formulary is not gonna be $150. It's gonna be a few thousand dollars. And uh, in speaking with them, I was encouraged to, to hear that this language was going to carve out where medications did not have a generic alternative that they would not be applied this copay accumulator policy. Uh, then the 2020 uh, NBPP was released 
and that language had been mysteriously removed. And it only was this year, so four years later, that I learned that it was removed because of IRS policies and having to do with income and assistance and more than anyone at the CMS I spoke with knew or could understand either. Um, so, you know, my, my interest in advocating here on the state level was looking at making change for me. Um, I'm not going to deny it. there was selfish interest of, I can't, I don't know how to survive this under this existing policy. And uh, we did make progress over several months getting policy introduced. Um, and it was a policy that was incorporated in a bill that then got loaded on with lots of other cork that was considered impassable. So because all the other stuff included with it was impassable, it was impassable for the copay accumulators as well. Um, and that, that was a bit disheartening. And I also felt like on a bigger scale uh, that this shouldn't exist in the country. In 2023, in the United States of America, the greatest country in the world, we, the patients, are being made as pawns between insurers and manufacturers. They're in this wrestling match, this mega wrestling match between these two mega forces. And we, the patients, are the pawn who are getting leveraged one way or the other. And I, I really, I got really ticked off about that. So that's where I started digging in on Center for Medicaid Services and realizing that the policies in those documents were not driven by legislators. They were driven by community input from professionals, pharma, from all different angles. Um, but the policies are incorporated by the CMS, which is a cabinet organization. So it's not elected officials driving this, this policy document. And the only mechanism of sidestepping that at this time was having local and state uh, officials be able to combat it with legislation per state. Uh, I did more work on it this year of working with the Center for Medicaid Services to really explore how can change be implemented. Um, I had watched, I think, a recent documentary on uh, Harry and Megan. And uh, there was an example of Megan when she was a little girl writing a letter to Dawn Soap Company that the commercial they had created was saying that women everywhere can clean dishes better. And she said, I think that's saying to everyone that only women can clean dishes. I'd really appreciate it if the commercial could say, if people everywhere. And sure enough, from this one little letter from a seven or eight year old girl changed their whole national marketing campaign. And so that was kind of my attitude of approach coming into this that I know I'm only one person. I know I represent a very small population. And of that small population, an even smaller subset that's subjected to commercial insurance and these copay accumulators. Uh, and I did receive a lot of positive response, but coming back to Siri's point about your voice being heard, that was the number one thing every official I spoke with at CMS was, 
we want more stories. We need more unique instances, not a form letter that goes out that everyone just signs their name on and says the same thing. We need to know what you, the individual, have dealt with and are currently dealing with and how that's unsustainable for you as a patient. And unfortunately, I learned this, uh, I think it was four days before their window for comments on the notice of benefit and payment parameters was closing. So for 2022, that uh, I just had called too late, but it's always an ongoing discussion. And the more that they have these tangible stories, the more that they can as an organization recognize that, yeah, these very small pools of patient populations that don't have a large voice are being significantly penalized in their healthcare. Um, I, I don't really understand the rationale of creating such a high hurdle to have to jump over to get to your medications on the other side. There's no benefit to disease management in, in that being in existence. So uh, I, did, I did some work to reach out and that's where I fully support this podcast and series efforts um, in raising awareness and inviting testimonies to how this may be implementing you and really creating a deficit in your ability to, to manage your well-being and to survive your disease. Thank you, Brian, for sharing that. I mean, the, the outrage that I felt, though, viewers could only see you speaking, but you know, if they could have seen me on Zoom, they'd see me just wincing and scowling because it is so outrageous. I mean, the retroactive thing, that just doesn't even seem legal. We'll just say that. Um, and then the other issue that, you know, everybody likes to couch this really as like manufacturers, payers, but think about what Brian shared with us that literally he's borrowing money from friends and family and that is not counting. It's like in, in what world did currency become literally bonded to one person? Money is money and any money to offset a copay, offset a deductible should be honored. So just right there, that is all, you know, part of the, the legislation in many states is any source of revenue, because what people forget, we do have things, the Health Well Foundation, there are church groups, there are patient advocacy groups who have um, assistance funds. None of those, according to many of these policies, will be applied. So, um, so many wrongs there. And then the other thing too, I am so grateful because I know you, love you and respect you, that you were able to borrow funds and access those therapies. But you know, coming back to that slide about even you know, at 75 to $125, 40% are walking away at 250, which when you think about the CF medications, 70% are walking away. And, and that's the other issue that we really need to make people reflect on is we talk so much about disparities in healthcare. And copay accumulator programs absolutely exacerbate disparities in healthcare. The people who have the least amount of funding are the ones who are at, will absolutely will either walk away from the counter or they'll get their meds, but then they're going to skip a dose here or there, go every two days or three days. Um, and again, it will exacerbate health conditions and, and the disparities. So thank you for, for sharing that. And now you've done 
this great advocacy. I know you've also written, you know, op-eds and editorials. Can you share some of that just to inspire maybe other people to write letters to their editors? Yeah, I, I, I think again, that your, your local politicians and representatives are in tune with the media. And when you are able to volunteer your voice through op-eds, articles, in-person meetings, um, the more visibility that you can gain, the more traction you can gain in these officials understanding that this is a real problem affecting real people's lives. And that ultimately will cost the healthcare industry greater uh, that if you're not able to access your medications, you are so much more likely to wind up in the hospital, which is hundreds of thousands, if not more, above what the medication would have cost initially. So it's just a completely backwards, inefficient way that insurers are thinking that they're saving money, but in the long run, it's going to cost them more money. But I know that politicians, like you said, are in bipartisan support of this. They recognize the human side of this, that living with a disease is nowhere near easy. It often is obstructive to having a full-time uh, earnable career uh, to be able to afford these things. Um, and that even if you are, like Siri said, you may be subject to insurance from, from companies in other states or that do not abide by your state's legislation. So it really, I, you know, I, I think I might be a little bit more focused on the national level of CMS and their control over implementing these four little words of when a generic alternative isn't available, five words. <laughs> um, but those, those five simple little words change the game. And, um, but unfortunately, CMS is not driven or defined by elected officials. Um, they want to hear directly from consumers. And they do, I learned, it's a very arduous task to find out where the comments need to be placed. Um, but I know through the organizations that we're working to support through this podcast, um, those links can be accessed and can be provided in a time frame that really does invite your voice. And it really is, again, it's like all shots on goal. I mean, it has to be happening at that level. Um, it has to happen at the federal level with HR 830. It has to happen at the state level. And so I will put the map back up so you can see the states where there are um, actions being taken. If you live in one of those aqua states, um, there are coalitions formed that we can link you to. Um, if you're in a state that has nothing going on, you know, maybe now is the time for us to find um, new alliances so that we can move this forward because um, it, it really does seem we have to be working on three levels simultaneously uh, to protect patients. Um, and again, we, Brian and I have both said this, your stories, your stories, your stories. And again, you may not have even realized that this is what it is. It's a copay accumulator program. This is why you're having to pay it. Uh, and that there, there are solutions to that. So I really encourage you, I'm gonna put up the All Copays Count website again, um, just for you to log in there and connect. If you have any questions, obviously you can reach out to me or to Brian. 
Um, we are happy to help you engage and share your story. And by all means, you don't need to be an expert in policy understanding, political legislation understanding. You just need to have a story, a human story, a real story of struggle and strife created by these policies. And that's what needs to be heard. So with that, any final thoughts, Brian, that you'd like to share? Um, I, I think this is a, an ongoing battle. I know that with eventual success of overcoming copay accumulator policies, that there will be other ways that insurers are trying to not pay. That's their job. Um, and that they will always have a mechanism that's creating difficulty for patients and leveraging patients as pawns in this huge debate. So I want to convey the mindset of that this is a marathon, not a sprint, and that your, your push on this initiative should and hopefully will be just the first of many because I'm already hearing about new programs that are coming out that present greater challenge that I hope never make it to actuality. But um, this is really an important, very pertinent factor. And because it's such a small patient pool, your voice is heard even louder than if it were millions of people dealing with this. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us here and sharing your story and inspiring others to get engaged and be involved. This is this has to move forward again at the state and the federal level. And thanks for all you are doing to advance that. And to everyone else, thank you for watching this. And we look forward to the next episode of CF Community Voices. Many thanks to all. Goodbye. <laughs>